0: Section 48 of Prison Memoirs of an Anarchist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Prison Memoirs of an Anarchist by Alexander Berkman. Part 2. CHAPTER 41. THE SHOCK AT BUFFALO 1. JULY Tenth, nineteen 1901 Dear Girl, this is from the hospital, Sub Rosa, just out of the straitjacket after eight days. For over a year I was in the strictest solitary. For a long time mail and reading matter were denied me. I have no words to describe the horror of the last months. I have passed through a great crisis. Two of my best friends died in a frightful manner. The death of Russell especially affected me. He was very young and my dearest and most devoted friend, and he died a terrible death. The doctor charged the boy with shamming, but now, he says, it was spinal meningitis. I cannot tell you the awful truth. It was nothing short of murder, and my poor friend rotted away by inches. When he died, they found his back one mass of bed sores. If you could read the pitiful letters he wrote, begging to see me and to be nursed by me. But the warden wouldn't permit it. In some manner his agony seemed to affect me, and I began to experience the pains and symptoms that Russell described in his notes. I knew it was my sick fancy. I strove against it, but presently my legs showed signs of paralysis, and I suffered excruciating pain in the spinal column, just like Russell. I was afraid that I would be done to death like my poor friend, I grew suspicious of every guard and would barely touch the food for fear of its being poisoned. My head was working, they said. And all the time I knew it was my diseased imagination, and I was in terror of going mad. I tried so hard to fight it, but it would always creep up and get hold of me stronger and stronger. Another week of solitary would have killed me i was on the verge of suicide i demanded to be relieved from the cell and the warden ordered me punished i was put in the straitjacket they bound my body in canvas strapped my arms to the bed and chained my feet to the posts i was kept that way eight days unable to move rotting in my own excrement Released prisoners called the attention of our new inspector to my case. He refused to believe that such things were being done in the penitentiary. Reports spread that I was going blind and insane. Then the inspector visited the hospital and had me released from the jacket. I'm in pretty bad shape, but they put me in the general ward now, and I'm glad of the chance to send you this note sasha two direct to box a seven allegheny city pennsylvania july 25th 1901 dear Sonya, i cannot tell you how happy i am to be allowed to write to you again my privileges have been restored by our new inspector a very kindly man. he has relieved me from the cell and now I am again on the range. The inspector requested me to deny to my friends the reports which have recently appeared in the papers concerning my condition. I have not been well of late, but now I hope to improve. My eyes are very poor. The inspector has given me permission to have a specialist examine them. Please arrange for it through our local comrades.' there is another piece of very good news dear friend a new commutation law has been passed which reduces my sentence by two and a half years It still leaves me a long time of course almost four years here and another year to the workhouse however it is a considerable gain and if i should not get into solitary again i may i am almost afraid to utter the thought i may live to come out i feel as if i'm being resurrected the new law benefits the short timers proportionately much more than the men with longer sentences only the poor lifers do not share in it we were very anxious for a while as there were many rumors that the law would be declared unconstitutional Fortunately, the attempt to nullify its benefits proved ineffectual. Think of men who will see something unconstitutional in allowing the prisoners a little more good time than the commutation statute of forty years ago. As if a little kindness to the unfortunates—really, justice—is incompatible with the spirit of Jefferson." We were greatly worried over the fate of this statute, but at last the first batch has been released and there is much rejoicing over it. There is a peculiar history about this new law which may interest you. It sheds a significant sidelight, it was especially designed for the benefit of a high federal officer who was recently convicted of aiding two wealthy philadelphia tobacco manufacturers to defraud the government of a few million by using counterfeit tax stamps their influence secured the introduction of the commutation bill and its hasty passage The law would have cut their sentences almost in two, but certain newspapers seemed to have taken offense at having been kept in ignorance of the deal, and protests began to be voiced. The matter finally came up before the Attorney General of the United States, who decided that the men in whose special interest the law was engineered could not benefit by it because a state law does not affect U.S. prisoners, the latter being subject to the Federal Commutation Act. Imagine the discomfiture of the politicians. An attempt was even made to suspend the operation of the statute. Fortunately, it failed. And now the common state prisoners, who were not at all meant to profit, are being released the legislature has unwittingly given some unfortunates here much happiness i was interrupted in this writing by being called out for a visit i could hardly credit it the first comrade i have been allowed to see in nine years it was harry gordon and i was so overcome by the sight of the dear friend i could barely speak He must have prevailed upon the new inspector to issue a permit. The latter is now acting warden, owing to the serious illness of Captain Wright. Perhaps he will allow me to see my sister. Will you kindly communicate with her at once? Meantime, I shall try to secure a pass, with renewed hope, and always with green memory of you, Alex. 3. Sabrosa, December twentieth nineteen o one dearest girl, I know how your visit and my strange behavior have affected you. The sight of your face after all these years completely unnerved me. I could not think. I could not speak. It was as if all my dreams of freedom, the whole world of the living were concentrated in the shiny little trinket that was dangling from your watch-chain i couldn't take my eyes off of it i couldn't keep my hand from playing with it it absorbed my whole being and all the time i felt how nervous you were at my silence and i couldn't utter a word perhaps it would have been better for us not to have seen each other under the present conditions It was lucky they did not recognize you. They took you for my sister, though I believe your identity was suspected after you had left. You would surely not have been permitted the visit had the old warden been here. He was ill at the time. He never got over the shock of the tunnel, and finally he has been persuaded by the prison physician, who has secret aspirations to the wardenship, that the anxieties of his position are a menace to his advanced age considerable dissatisfaction has also developed of late against the warden among the inspectors well he has resigned at last thank goodness the prisoners have been praying for it for years and some of the boys on the range celebrated the event by getting drunk on wood alcohol The new warden has just assumed charge, and we hope for improvement. He is a physician by profession, with the title of Major in the Pennsylvania Militia. It was entirely uncalled for, on the part of the officious friend, whoever he may have been, to cause you unnecessary worry over my health and my renewed persecution you remember that in july the new inspector released me from the straitjacket and assigned me to work on the range but i was locked up again in october after the mckinley incident the president of the board of inspectors was at the time in new york he inquired by wire what i was doing upon being informed that i was working on the range he ordered me into solitary the new warden on assuming office sent for me they give you a bad reputation he said but i will let you out of the cell if you'll promise to do what is right by me he spoke brusquely in the manner of a man closing a business deal with the power of dictating terms he reminded me of bismarck at versailles yet he did not seem unkind The thought of escape was probably in his mind. But the new law has germinated the hope of survival. My weakened condition and the unexpected shortening of my sentence have at last decided me to abandon the idea of escape. I therefore replied to the warden, I will do what is right by you if you treat me right. Thereupon he assigned me to work on the range, It is almost like liberty to have the freedom of the cell-house after the close solitary. And you, dear friend? In your letters I feel how terribly torn you are by the events of the recent months. I lived in great fear for your safety, and I can barely credit the good news that you are at liberty. It seems almost a miracle. I followed the newspapers with great anxiety, the whole country seemed to be swept with the fury of revenge to a considerable extent the press fanned the fires of persecution here in the prison very little sincere grief was manifested out of hearing of the guards the men passed very uncomplimentary remarks about the dead president the average prisoner corresponds to the average citizen their patriotism is very passive except when stimulated by personal interest or artificially excited but if the press mirrored the sentiment of the people the nation must have suddenly relapsed into cannibalism there were moments when i was in mortal dread for your very life and for the safety of the other arrested comrades in previous letters you hinted that it was official rivalry and jealousy and your absence from new york to which you owe your release you may be right yet i believe that your attitude of proud self-respect and your admirable self-control contributed much to the result you were splendid dear and i was especially moved by your remark that you would faithfully nurse the wounded man if he required your services. But the poor boy, condemned and deserted by all, needed and deserved your sympathy and aid more than the President. More strikingly than your letters, that remark discovered to me the great change wrought in us by the ripening years. Yes, in us, in both, for my heart echoed your beautiful sentiment." how impossible such a thought would have been to us in the days of a decade ago we should have considered it treason to the spirit of revolution it would have outraged all our traditions even to admit the humanity of an official representative of capitalism is it not very significant that we two you living in the very heart of anarchist thought and activity and I, in the atmosphere of absolute suppression and solitude, should have arrived at the same evolutionary point after a decade of divergent paths? You have alluded in a recent letter to the ennobling and broadening influence of sorrow. Yet not upon everyone does it exert a similar effect. Some natures grow embittered and shrink with the poison of misery. I often wonder at my lack of bitterness and enmity, even against the old warden, and surely I have good cause to hate him. Is it because of greater maturity? I rather think it is temperamentally conditioned. The love of the people, the hatred of oppression of our younger days, vital as these sentiments were with us, were mental rather than emotional. Fortunately so, I think for those like feja and lewis and pauline and numerous others soon have their emotionally inflated idealism punctured on the thorny path of the social protestant only aspirations that spontaneously leap from the depths of our soul persist in the face of antagonistic forces the revolutionist is born Beneath our love and hatred of former days lay inherent rebellion and the passionate desire for liberty and life. In the long years of isolation, I have looked deeply into my heart. With open mind and sincere purpose, I have revised every emotion and every thought. Away from my former atmosphere and the disturbing influence of the world's turmoil, I have divested myself of all traditions and accepted beliefs. I have studied the sciences and the humanities, contemplated life, and pondered over human destiny. For weeks and months I would be absorbed in the domain of pure reason, or discuss with Leibniz the question of free will, and seek to penetrate beyond Spencer into the unknowable political science and economics, law, and criminology. I studied them with unprejudiced mind, and sought to slacken my soul's thirst by delving deeply into religion and theology, seeking the key to life at the feet of Mrs. Eddy, expectantly listening for the voice of disembodied, studying Corishanity and Theosophy, absorbing the prana of knowledge and power, and concentrating upon the wisdom of the yogi. And after years of contemplation and study, chastened by much sorrow and suffering, I arise from the broken fetters of the world's folly and illusions, to behold the threshold of a new life of liberty and equality, my youth's ideal of a free humanity, in the vague future, has become clarified and crystallized into the living truth of anarchy as the sustaining elemental force of my everyday existence. Often I have wondered in the years gone by, was not wisdom dear at the price of enthusiasm? At thirty, one is not so reckless, not so fanatical and one-sided as at twenty. WITH MATURITY WE BECOME MORE UNIVERSAL, BUT LIFE IS A SHYLOCK THAT CANNOT BE CHEATED OF HIS DUE. FOR EVERY LESSON IT TEACHES US, WE HAVE A WOUND OR A SCAR TO SHOW. WE GROW BROADER, BUT TOO OFTEN THE HEART CONTRACTS AS THE MIND EXPANDS, AND THE FIRES ARE BURNING DOWN WHILE WE ARE LEARNING at such moments my mind would revert to the days when the momentarily expected approach of the social revolution absorbed our exclusive interest the raging present and its conflicting currents passed us by while our eyes were riveted upon the dawn in thrilling expectancy of the sunrise life and its manifold expressions were vexatious to the spirit of revolt and poetry literature and art were scorned as hindrances to progress unless they sounded the toxin of immediate revolution humanity was sharply divided in two warring camps the noble people the producers who yearned for the light of the new gospel and the hated oppressors the exploiters who craftily strove to obscure the rising day that was to give back to man his heritage if only the good people were given an opportunity to hear the great truth how joyfully they would embrace anarchy and walk in triumph into the promised land the splendid naivete of the days that resented as a personal reflection the least misgivings of the future the enthusiasm that discounted the power of inherent prejudice and predilection magnificent was the day of hearts on fire with the hatred of oppression and the love of liberty Woe, indeed, to the man or the people whose soul never warmed with the spark of Prometheus. For it is youth that has climbed the heights, but maturity has clarified the way, and the stupendous task of human regeneration will be accomplished only by the purified vision of hearts that grow not cold. And you, my dear friend, with the deeper insight of time— you have yet happily kept your heart young. I have rejoiced at it in your letters of recent years, and it is especially evident from the sentiments you have expressed regarding the happening at Buffalo. I share your view entirely. For that very reason, it is the more distressing to disagree with you in one very important particular, the value of Leon's act i know the terrible ordeal you have passed through the fiendish persecution to which you have been subjected worse than all must have been to you the general lack of understanding for such phenomena and sadder yet the despicable attitude of some would-be radicals in denouncing the man and his act but i am confident that you will not mistake my expressed disagreement for condemnation we need not discuss the phase of attentat which manifested the rebellion of a tortured soul the individual protest against social wrong such phenomena are the natural result of evil conditions as inevitable as the flooding of the river banks by the swelling mountain torrents but i cannot agree with you regarding the social value of leon's act i have read of the beautiful personality of the youth of his inability to adapt himself to brutal conditions and the rebellion of his soul it throws a significant light onto the causes of the attentat indeed it is at once the greatest tragedy of martyrdom and the most terrible indictment of society that it forces the noblest men and women to shed human blood though their souls shrink from it but the more imperative it is that drastic methods of this character be resorted to only as a last extremity to prove of value they must be motivated by social rather than individual necessity and be directed against a real and immediate enemy of the people the significance of such a deed is understood by the popular mind and in that alone is the propagandistic educational importance of the attentat except if it is exclusively an act of terrorism now i do not believe that this deed was terroristic and i doubt whether it was educational because the social necessity for its performance was not manifest that you may not misunderstand i repeat as an expression of personal revolt, it was inevitable, and in itself an indictment of existing conditions. But the background of social necessity was lacking, and therefore the value of the act was to a great extent nullified. In Russia, where political oppression is popularly felt, such a deed would be of great value. But the scheme of political subjection is more subtle in America, and though McKinley was the chief representative of our modern slavery, he could not be considered in the light of a direct and immediate enemy of the people, while in an absolutism the autocrat is visible and tangible. The real despotism of Republican institutions is far deeper, more insidious, because it rests on the popular delusion of self-government and independence that is the subtle source of democratic tyranny and as such it cannot be reached with a bullet in modern capitalism exploitation rather than oppression is the real enemy of the people oppression is but its handmaid hence the battle is to be waged in the economic rather than the political field it is therefore that i regard my own act as far more significant and educational than leon's it was directed against a tangible real oppressor visualized as such by the people as long as misery and tyranny fill the world social contrasts and consequent hatreds will persist and the noblest of the race, our Cholga burst forth in rockets of iron. But does this lightning really illumine the social horizon, or merely confuse minds with the succeeding darkness? The struggle of labor against capital is a class war, essentially and chiefly economic. In that arena the battles must be fought." It was not these considerations of course that inspired the nationwide manhunt or the attitude even of alleged radicals their cowardice has filled me with loathing and sadness the brutal farce of the trial the hypocrisy of the whole proceeding the thirst for the blood of the martyr these make one almost despair of humanity i must close the friend to smuggle out this letter will be uneasy about its bulk send me sign of receipt and i hope that you may be permitted a little rest and peace to recover from the nightmare of the last months sasha end of section forty eight